Did you hear the announcement that we're starting a three-month retreat on Monday and you're all signed up? It's free. I have a lovely, I have a lovely little sign on my refrigerator that somebody put up. It's lovely. It says, awareness is free. I quite like that. It costs money to go to courses and retreats, but awareness is free. use the handout that you have <laughs> to completely different pairs. Let's start with the, um, the preliminaries. So I've given this handout, which is an insert for all the practices I've given. That means that when you start a loving kindness meditation or you start a compassion meditation, you cap it with aspiration and you finish it, you cap it at the end with a dedication. There's every tradition has different aspirations and dedications. Right? Depends on the teachers. And because I couldn't find a short one that fit the bottom of the page, I kind of wrote one this afternoon. Uh, which is very classic, but, but it's just uh, for my own mind. So let's start with the first, uh, the first three and set our aspiration, our intention uh, for our listening and our study and our practice uh, at a very high level. First, the aspiration of bodhicitta, the enlightenment mind. All mother sentient beings, especially those enemies, instructors who harm me and those who create obstacle path, liberation, and missions. May the experience happiness be separate from suffering. I'll quickly establish that the state is the most perfect and precious people. All mother sentient beings, especially those enemies who hate me, obstructors who harm me, and those who create obstacles, path, liberation, distance. May they experience happiness and be separated from suffering. I'll quickly establish them in the state of the most perfect and precious Buddhahood. All mother sentient beings, especially those enemies who hate me, obstructors who harm me, and those who create obstacles, path, liberation, distance. May they experience happiness and be separated from suffering. I'll quickly establish them in the state of the most perfect and precious Buddhahood. And now the activity of the enlightenment mind. Thus, until I achieve enlightenment, I perform virtuous deeds with body, speech, and mind. Until death, I perform virtuous deeds with body, speech, and mind. From now until it's time tomorrow, I perform virtuous deeds with body, speech, and mind. And then refuge. In the Buddha, the Dharma, the song, the most excellent, I take refuge, enlightenment is reached. By the merit of generosity and the good deeds, may I attain Buddhahood for the sake of sentience. In the Buddha, the Dharma, the song, the most excellent, I take refuge, enlightenment is reached. By the merit of generosity and the good deeds, may I attain Buddhahood for the sake of all sentient beings. In the Buddha, the Dharma, the song, the most excellent, I take refuge, enlightenment is reached. By the merit of generosity and the good deeds, may I attain Buddhahood for the sake of all sentient beings. In the uh, section called Action Bodhicitta, it's, it's curious. It says, thus, until I achieve enlightenment, I perform ethical or virtuous activity with body, speech, and mind. That means 
it, the implication for that uh, in the tradition is that when there is full awakening, the uh, ethical activity and the spread of compassionate awake mind, speech and body, is spontaneous and effortless. So there's no need at that point to practice. That's, that's traditionally called no more meditation. You don't, one doesn't have to meditate, um, which is a very high attainment. One doesn't have to meditate because that's the actual stream of mind. It's now unified with the way the mind is in its natural state. When it says virtuous deeds, um, for instance, by the merit, by the strength of generosity and other good deeds, that is short form for generosity, uh, excellent ethical conduct, um, patience, uh, energy, meditative concentration, and wisdom. So those are called the six parami. The six parami is the foundation for crossing over the uh, turbulent uh, afflictive states. So, so that's its short form. And, and when people ask me, what does the word merit mean? It means the full collection of all the strength one needs to be able to actually penetrate the veil of, of confusion. We normally think that the veil of confusion is the difficult emotional afflictive states. Um, but in some ways, the most difficult is the wish for peacefulness and tranquility. That will come up eventually in a spiritual practice, is uh, even though the afflictive states are there, the wish to be in a almost a state of nothingness, leave me alone, all's good, why would I engage with people, they're very difficult, let me just be a blank, and let me be in a state of bliss and joy, that state which is called nirvana, not the true state of nirvana, but often called nirvana, that is a, called an obstacle to liberation. The full scope of liberation is the effortless compassion of liberating minds into primordial nature. So that's why we repeat these, because we need to really uh, know where we're going. So, so again, uh, for those that don't have traditional verses, because some of you already have traditional verses that you use, but for those that don't, you can use this for the Tonglen meditation, and you can use this for any of your other practices, where, like a breathing meditation, where you're just going to breathe and be calm, but you can cap it with an aspiration and a dedication. Very important to do. Otherwise, what you do is you create calm, but you don't liberate. The mind has to actually uh, go in the right uh, direction. Uh, so uh, the other thing I wanted to mention uh, today is in the Tonglen meditation, which is part of a larger um, a transmission of called the 59 aphorisms of mind training, very famous. Uh, there is a practice that you'll find in um, ancient India and also in China, in, in Qigong, 
which is the counting of 21 breaths. And there's a reason for that. And there's a reason for 21. When you can count to 21, in one, out one, and you don't lose any concentration on the sensation, no mind drifting, just every sensation of in out is clear, uh, you've reached the first stage of tranquility out of nine stages. It's, very, it's actually very well measured. Uh, that means there will be occasional mind wandering, but you're on your way to a very deep, peaceful state. Tranquility is really important because if the mind is too turbulent, it can't penetrate through to what's in front of it. It won't look. It's, it's just too busy following sensations. So I recommend, this is what the first, actually the first Buddhist meditation I ever practiced out of a book. When I started practicing and I discovered I was meditating, I found a book in our local library at the age of 16 called Tibetan Yoga and Secret Doctrines, a 1927 uh, translation of a very ancient uh, Tibetan manual of meditation, the first of its kind in our library, and the only meditation book in our library. And I opened it up and started reading it and went, wow, this is amazing. And one of the practices was counting to 21 breaths. A Drikong Kagyu practice. Odd, eh? And uh, so that was my first practice, practicing that. And then it said, uh, start practicing until you can do, till you can do all 24 hours a day. 21,500 breaths a day without break. How's that for a practice? <laughs> By the way, the, the Drikan Kagyu are known for really uh, hard-ass meditators and highly accomplished um, yogins. So that's, uh, that's, where I, that's where I started until I, until I had personal instruction. Uh, that practice and the practice of Mahamudra and the practice of the six yogas, six dharmas in the rope. So... But I will tell you that um, practicing out of a book is um, not only potentially dangerous, that never happened to me, but um, quite a bit of a waste of time. It's really good to have personal instruction. Okay, so just for a few minutes, I'll open up the, uh, the room to, to questions because they're very important that your, your um, questions are answered, get an opportunity. And then we'll go uh, deeper into the Tonglen uh, meditation. Yes. You were <clears throat> mentioning earlier the monk who meditated sol solely on loving kindness. Yes. <clears throat> so if that happens, would uh, generosity and, and wisdom and compassion, for example, fall right into place? No. Not necessarily, no. No, yeah, chances are the person will be much more generous. Uh, they'll have much more compassion. But the compassion of primordial awareness is not necessarily developed through loving kindness. The instructions for meditating on emptiness must be there. So this is, this is a very important point. For transcendent bodhicitta, for transcendent compassion, it must be unified with the realization of emptiness. Otherwise, it is, um, it will fall short, greatly short. 
and, and emptiness is the absence of all those negative qualities. Emptiness. Anger, hate. Uh, uh, yes. Envy. Emptiness is the absence of afflictive states. Uh, let's let's get let's let's give a couple definitions. Emptiness is non-clinging awareness. Emptiness is the way the mind actually is. The mind is empty uh, in its in its basic ground state of any afflictive state. It's utterly pure and it's utterly compassionate. That's called emptiness. So the word emptiness is an English translation of the word, a Sanskrit word, shunyata. And shunyata is not easy to translate. Shunyata also has a root which is S-U-N, which is sun, luminosity. So emptiness, when, it's tra- when the word is translated as emptiness, one tends to think of it as empty, as void. It's anything but void. It's emptied out of afflictive states, which means it's rich in luminosity of compassion, light, love, and liberation. So think of it this way. When, this, when the mind is full of luminosity, light, and space, spaciousness, it has no obstructive feelings. Therefore, anything is possible, and it projects liberation. Does this make sense? Naturally projects liberation. It's kind of like walking into a room, and you're, you're, you're in darkness, and you walk into, ro- into a room that's all beautifully lit up, with stained glass, like walking into a cathedral, and your heart and your mind is lifted to a feeling of openness. In this case, it's lifted up into liberation, freedom. So when we say emptiness of self, it's not negating relative self-experience, it's not negating relative ego it's negating an ultimate self and an ultimate ego as a true defined experience this is hard it's very easy what is this called this is not a zen trick what is this called cell phone thank you how do you know it's a cell phone? It looks like a cell phone. That means you have a memory of what cell phones look like and you're calling up a name to match the, the image, correct? If you go into the cell phone with a microscope and into the screen, it's no longer a cell phone, it's a screen. The cell phone is made up of component parts, but the cell phone is a concept in the mind that only functions with all those component parts. Follow? And all those component parts have to be working for it to be called a cell phone. So if this uh, light over here, if I said, oh no, that's a cell phone, you'll say that's not a cell phone, that's a light. But could, watch now. Could that be a cell phone? You see? 
Could the house here be a cell phone? Yes. Are you getting it? Could the chair you're sitting on be a cell phone? Yes. Could Nathan's hat be a cell phone? Let's, let's continue on. You'll see. Can Nathan's glasses be a cell phone? Yes. Could there be a cell phone in Nathan's brain? Yes. Are you getting the idea? That in your mind is a concept. It has no real substantiality outside your mind. Okay? This could be a table. It could be a plate. It could be a missile. You following? But when we put it in a certain context, it becomes a cell phone. The self is a series of experiences you get told that is a self. You've been taught that is yourself. The self is utterly vast. So when we practice uh, insight or uh, vipassana, we look at the self components very carefully for long periods of time, and we see that everyone is like a rainbow. It's ephemeral, and the clinging comes off. The clinging to self, self-referencing, and self being a real, true, lasting, permanent nature is what causes suffering. When that comes off, a tremendous amount of freedom comes off your shoulders. The weight on people's shoulders holding up the self is immense. It hurts. It drives people crazy. When that comes off, the craziness comes off. But that doesn't mean you still can't have a self. Okay? Unless it gets less poked. It's hard to poke a rainbow. So the self is like a rainbow. It's empty of a true substantial nature and it turns out that it's actually luminous, open compassion. Okay. Any other questions? Yes. Um, does pain actually exist, or do you consider it one of the clouds, or what? Uh, pain. Um, Pain does not exist. Pain is a sensation in the mind. So have you ever seen pictures of people who put uh, knives through their, their tongue or through their cheek? Now that's not to say that some people in this room, all of us, have probably experienced excruciating pain and require medication. But uh, when you change the view, and this has happened, has it happened to all of you? where there's been extreme pain and all of a sudden you're chuckling and you go, it's vanished because you went like this or someone said, look, look, can you see that? Or whatever it is, or a beautiful bowl of flowers and whatever it is, and you go, oh yeah, pain vanishes. All sensations are created in the mind. 
That's not to say that pain shouldn't be managed. But for some yogins, uh, uh, there's a wonderful story, I think, of... Um, I think it was Diglo Kensei Rinpoche, great, great yogin. And he had to have knee surgery. And he asked not to have any um, anesthetic. And his wife and his attendant watched while the surgeon cut over his, opened his knee and everything. And he was actually, that's really cool. That's a very well-trained yogin. Um, not mo most people can't do that. Okay, they'll just faint right out. But but actually, the uh, pain and joy are actually um, um, the interdependence of physical phenomena and mind. Yeah. So it's not it's not just that pain is a mental phenomena. It's actually physical, but it's interpreted by the mind. How you interpret it is actually how you experience it. <coughs> For somebody who may be a clinical neurologist, that pain may be a fascinating thing to watch. Yeah? For another person, they may be freaking out. Yeah. But that doesn't mean that pain doesn't relatively exist. It doesn't absolutely exist. Any others? By the way, as a, as a further note about pain, it's, it's pain and pleasure that's really confusing us. It's the mistaken notion that sensation is a permanent, thick, solid phenomena when sensation is not. That's what's getting us. We need to sit with sensation. I'm not saying sit with pain. We need to sit with sensation moment after moment, hour after hour, to be able to contemplate pain and see actually it is uh, whatever the mind um, conjoins with it is actually what the experience is. Okay? And it actually is luminously open. Try it. Try it. I don't suggest you put um, knives into your body to start that way. Mm -hmm. I wouldn't suggest that. Or, or meditate on a bed of nails. I would not suggest that. But you'll be surprised. How, how many people in meditation have experienced a lot of pain and suddenly it's vanished? You know, like a, a, a backache or pain in the leg or an ankle that's really sore. And then all of a sudden you enter into a really concentrated state. The breath opens, you feel radiant. And then after a little while you go, where's that pain? Have you, ever ha have you had that? Isn't that something? Just like that. When one breathes, and the sensation goes through the body, which hopefully is after 21 breaths. That's the sign. Your body feels full of breath, full of sensation. You won't feel any pain. And if you get deep enough in concentration, someone could stick a needle in you and you wouldn't feel it, or a knife. And that's why, um, I'm not saying practice this way, don't. It's, it's actually against the precepts, but, but you remember the photographs and the movies of those monks in, in Vietnam during the war that would light themselves up with gasoline? They were going into a third, fourth, fifth stage absorption of one point of concentration. There's no body left. 
When you're in that state, there's no body. You will feel no body. It's just blissful, one-pointed concentration. So they practice that. But that's not 21 breaths. <laughs> that's many, many breaths with no distraction. That's, there's no, it's, it's quite, quite different. That's not the purpose of meditation. The purpose of meditation is to see the illusory nature of all sensation. That doesn't mean that you stop eating chocolate. Because some of you are worried. I can see that. <laughs> now do I stop eating chocolate? Do I never have truffles with my scrambled eggs? No, nothing like that. As long as there is confusion over sensation, there will not be the ability to look at the primordial awareness. It's blocked. Okay? How's that? Try that. As long as there is attachment and confusion about the nature of sensation, one can't look directly at primordial awareness. One is attached to sensation as a real phenomenon. but we don't necessarily have to get rid of sensation. Yes? I have a question regarding loss or death, for example. Loss or death? Uh -huh. mm -hmm. um, and what your take would be, or what you um, could say on grief, uh, would grief would be then an attachment? Or because experiencing it, you kind of separate what pain and suffering is, but I understand it, both come from the mind. Um, because all the thoughts are on, or sensations, mm -hmm. could be thought of coming from, a, you know, the past or the projection of the future. So you're, you're coping with something that's not real, but their grief is real. Grief and is so grief is grief is relatively real. Yeah. So you can have both. You can have both sensations at the same time. There's a great there was a great awakened saint called uh, Marpa in the 10th century, 11th century in Tibet, and Marpa had a son. And Marpa's son was supposed to inherit the lineage of the Kagyu lineage. And Marpa's son. <coughs> Uh, went during a three-year <coughs> retreat, uh, got invited to go to a community festival and go horseback riding. And Milarepa was sent to look after his son. On the way back, his son fell off the horse and cracked open his head. Eventually died. He died in, in his father's arms. And his, his students around Marpa said, how come you're crying? You're supposed to be an enlightened being. He said, I may be crying and have grief for my son's death. His brains was spilled out of his, his head. But my mind is still residing in primordial awareness. So you can still be human, but you can, see still, you can still experience the bliss nature of illusory uh, fabrication simultaneously. So in the same way that the Dalai Lama, uh, when he's thinking about his teachers, uh, cried out of, out of joy. 
he still has an emotion, but he's also experiencing it as an empty, illusory phenomenon simultaneously. You don't have to give up your humanness, you just simply give up the emotions that don't work. How's that as a point? I think that might help better. It's not that you have to give up emotion. It's which emotions cause suffering, which emotions cause pain, which emotions are maladaptive to an awake mind. Is that straightforward? It's very easy. It could even be that the happiness that one has is in the way. It's too happy. I remember my, my teacher, Nam Rinpoche, saying to me, I'd, I'd given a whole bunch of gifts in Japan. And I walked into a store and I saw something. Oh, that'd be lovely for my teacher. I was in one of those moods of just absolute buy everything for your teacher. And I remember him saying, I gave him this vase or something. And he said, too much spontaneity, too much generosity. It's awful. <laughs> awful. <coughs> over the top. <clears throat> so you could have generosity that's actually an afflictive state. You could have non-clinging that's so non-clinging it's an afflictive state. You could have love that's so beautiful and it's an afflictive state. It has no intelligence. Gee, I, I can't wait till I can give some cocaine to a, to a drug addict. <laughs> So nothing wrong with grief, but, but here's, here's something. How long do you grieve for? If you go on the internet, you'll find all kinds of, of prescriptions for how long you grieve for. Are they true? I know people have told me I'm supposed to grieve for a year. That's how long I'll grieve for. Why? I read that. <laughs> Has anyone been grieving and happy at the death of a loved one? Yeah. The mind can actually have emotion and reside in great bliss of freedom simultaneously. It's called the two-in-one truth. Relative and absolute transcendence at the same time. Therefore, you can be compassionate but not fall into the bewildered states of confusion. The grief is not real, but it is a human quality. Actually, it's a quality among many animals. Yeah. So it should not be dismissed, but the afflictive nature of it should not necessarily be supportive. I'm going to be in grief for years. Did you see? I'm going to be in grief for years. I should be in grief. And I'm in grief. Do you see, see what happens now? I'm suffering. That becomes the personality. That becomes now the feature of the person as their self-image. So it could have been that Marpa uh, um, aggrieved over his son, but five minutes later also then bestowed empowerment or, or gave a teaching. It's, it's, it's like that. That's why I said to somebody today, I was very happy to hear that their, their father-in-law passed away. 
because it was timely. Great, congratulations. Was it, was it the right time? Yes, excellent. My heart goes out to the family, my heart goes out to the person that just died, but I'm also very happy that someone died in a timely manner. Just as my, both my parents, when they passed away, I was absolutely happy. Absolutely thrilled for it. Perfect, excellent deaths. Nicely done. But was I also sad to not be with them anymore? Yes, simultaneously. Happy and sad. Pain and pain and pleasure simultaneously. Okay, one one more. Yes, I think Misha was. It's a follow-on from that. In in that sense, is the difference between the grief being a raw emotion and the story that could then get uh, exactly around it? Yes. So the degree, it's the degree of story making. If you have a physiological response of grief, or happiness, or sadness, or pain, and it's an immediate physical upwelling, and it subsides without story making, without it being held up, without it being, there's a beautiful word, um, I forget from the, from the Tibetan, but translated in English as it's a beautiful word, proliferation. It's a technical Zogchen term, to proliferate. It's when we proliferate, that's the difficulty. But when the snake unties itself naturally, because you're abiding in the empty nature phenomenon, you'll see it just fades away. It fades like a rainbow. If we train that way, actually train that way, that means you need time. Happiness, sadness, all different emotions, and you actually call them up in the state of clarity awareness and let them all tie themselves, you'll actually see they're just rainbow light. And that's actually what's going to happen. You may not believe me now, but actually you're going to be seeing thoughts as rainbows. And all this phenomena is rainbow light. Physiologically, that's all you're seeing. Points of rainbow light. It's all made up into a story of people. No, not one of you are seeing anybody in the room the same way. Not one. All created in the mind with face cells. Do you know you all have face cells? face recognition cells, body recognition cells. Some of the males in this room have Lamborghini recognition cells. They're specific for Lamborghinis and Ferraris. Whoa! They just see a fender of a Lamborghini and they go, whoa! True. Whereas somebody else looks at the fender of a Lamborghini they go, they don't even, nothing happens. Nothing For a carpenter, look at that S-wing hammer, that 16-out S-wing hammer. Wow. Somebody else goes, what is that? So it's the proliferation of stories, fabrication, the, the resting of the mind in its natural state, which is one of the stages of Tonglen, is no fabrication. 
no trying to meditate, no trying not to meditate, not holding onto anything at all, but letting the luminous <coughs> mind be as it is. And that's called self-liberation, automatic natural liberation. Okay, one more. There's one more question back there. Yes. Um, my mind tends to think of us as being part human and part spirit. I, I'm a little confused by by So awakening, you, you've still got this human part that, that has a tendency to believe the stories, right? The cultural, the family stories. You're just maybe catching them right at the beginning? Or are you saying all of that humanness disappears? No, it doesn't disappear. What is maladaptive disappears. Purification yeah. is the maladaptive human traits that aren't functioning anymore that fall away. Yeah, so, so you've done enough watching that, you're, that when they do start, they, that you're catching them very quickly. Yeah. Event, or event, they're just not there at all. No, eventually that which is maladaptive actually isn't anymore. Okay. That's liberation. Okay, because I tend to think, think of that as a being our humanness. Yeah, no, uh, you may, for instance, to be, very, to be human is to have grief. But you can have grief without proliferation. Without the stories. Yeah. What's going to happen to me? What's going to happen to them? Yeah. And tossing and turning and being churning up and, you know, all this. No need for that. None, none at all. And it's really about the watching, like I think you said earlier, just the, the watching that goes on, especially between sitting on the mat. This is why I love these questions. I really love your questions. So, if we watch phenomena, we're at a certain stage. But watching phenomena, watching experiences, don't liberate. Mindfulness doesn't liberate. We actually have to see the empty nature to liberate. Watching phenomena, one-pointedly, is a really good training, like watching the breath. Eventually, we have to see that the actual experience is transparently open, spacious, luminous awareness. Otherwise, so, that, so one, one is um, uh, one-pointed concentration, mm -hmm. and one is penetrating the nature of the phenomena. So the, the confusion over this is mindfulness. Mindfulness actually means, in, in Pali and Sanskrit, sati. It got translated as mindfulness or watching a hundred years ago. The word actually more often means learning, recollectedness, and memory. So the, the, we have to actually look at the phenomena and ask, what is it? That's, that's, that's where we actually gain wisdom. Tranquility is the ability to watch and remain utterly calm in the face of activity. It doesn't liberate. What liberates is knowing the nature of the phenomenon. That liberates. 
whatever it is. So thank you for that. Yeah. We could watch something for a hundred years. We still have to ask the question, what is it? So you know the story of Sherlock Holmes? You've all read Sherlock Holmes? So Sherlock Holmes, uh, Watson, remember Watson, Dr. Watson? Dr. Watson uh, got married and uh, left the apartment with Sherlock Holmes for a year. He got married and hadn't seen Sherlock Holmes for a year. And one evening, uh, uh, Watson, Dr. Watson was in a cart uh, going, uh, you know, horse cart, going by a Sherlock Holmes uh, apartment where they used to live together and saw the light on. He stopped the, the, the horse and he got out and he ran up the steps because he wanted to see his, his colleague, Sherlock Holmes. He runs up the steps, he goes and opens the door, and there's Sherlock, of course, smoking opium, of course. And he can tell that Sherlock is trying to solve a case. And, and Watson goes, how do you do it? How is it that you do this and solve these cases just sitting here in your apartment smoking, well, it doesn't say smoking opium. And Sherlock said, says to him, how many steps did you just run up? I don't know how many steps. How many years did you live here? And you, don't, and you didn't count the number of steps? He goes, no, I never count the number of steps. That's the difference. Something like, you see, but I observe. So you have to collect data, and then you actually have to puzzle what is that data and let it come to you, let it come to you, let it come to you. The non-conceptual mind comes in a non-conceptual way. You have to let it come to you. Okay. So now you have another meditation to do. The meditation on 21 breaths. So I want to tell you how to do that, and then we're going to take a break, and then we're going to have a full session of Tonglen. This is a wonderful meditation for developing tranquility. So I'm now going to give you the transmission from the old, old way, as I was taught, and as it's found in the old text, of how to count the breath. It's a fantastic meditation, but you need time and discipline. It's wonderful. The first thing you do is you count the in and out breaths, one in, one out, up to 10. And you learn to count one in, one out, the sensation at the nose tip. So the eyes are looking out about here. You'll, you'll experience fantastic tranquility. It's, it's absolutely beautiful. The mind just resting. And the eyes are about here, and you can just see the shadow of the nose, the nose tip. No eye strain. The, the, you want the back straight, you want the shoulders back of it, so you can breathe, let the belly out. And you feel the sensation at the tip of the nose. When there's sensation, you count one. It can also be sensation in the belly. <coughs> Naturally, with no forcing, the breath comes out, and you count one. When you can count up to 10, congratulations, with no distraction. When you can count back 9, 8, 
seven, right? Six, all the way back. Go up and down with no distraction. Then you're ready to go to 21. That's how I was taught by Nam Jirmpashe. When you can count to 21 breaths and there's no deviation, there's no skipping off into a fantasy, there's no, oh, what was that? Um, start going off and you go, oh, I think I was at 15. When you can go 21 and you're right on at every sensation, you're at the first stage of tranquility. Then what you do is when you get good at that, just like playing scales, this is like playing scales. When you get really good at that, that means you can do it every time really well. Then you see how far you can go in an hour. It's great. So when you get up to 30 and you, and you get distracted, you go back to zero. It's a fantastic practice. When you get up to 59 and you lose it, you go back to zero. You have to be absolutely truthful. Eventually you'll find that you can breathe every count for an hour right on. I'm not going to tell you how many breaths that is because the more calm you are, the slower your breath. You say, oh, well, then I'll probably have 600 breaths an hour. No, you might only have 100. The breath gets very, very slow. As the breath slows down, it will begin to rest. It'll let go. It'll stop holding. And the mind rests. So where, whatever the breath is doing, the turbulence of the breath, the movement of the breath, is how you'll have your mind states. As the breath slows naturally, and as it becomes very refined, the states of mind become refined, and you'll go through a sequence of stages. The mind will become very tacked on to the sensation, the mind will become, the whole body will begin to feel very light and, and uh, joyful, the physical body. Then once the body becomes full of sensation, uh, especially the nose tip, but the whole body becomes full of sensation, then the mind will become very blissful, very happy. Eventually, if you keep practicing this way, the body sensation will fall away completely. It will just go. And all there will be is this pervasive, happy mind. It's extraordinary. Like there's nothing else in the universe but just this pervasive happiness. If you let go of the happiness and don't cling to the happiness, then you get this exquisite balance that's neither happy nor sad. And a pervasive laser-like mind that unifies with the object. These are the stages. Eventually, at the ninth stage of tranquility, by following the breath, there's no more trying to make the mind settled. There's no more thought. There's simply no more thought for minutes, hours, days. It just rests without any thought, like an ocean. Have you ever been in the tropics on the ocean where it's absolutely flat calm? There's not a single wave, the doldrums. It's the doldrums, except it's illuminated and it's bright. It's absolutely shiningly bright. Uh, so this is called the ninth stage of tranquility. So if you practice this way, uh, you uh, will find 
that you'll have this extraordinary ability to um, meditate and stay with an object and let the mind rest and that becomes a wonderful, wonderful tool for penetrating the, uh, into the nature of mind. Okay, that's the very classic way of, of, of practicing. Okay, so that's why the 21 breaths. So let's take a, uh, a 10 minute break and yeah, let's take a 10 minute break, come back and we'll have a good uh, full practice of uh, Tonglen. Breathing right. as, you, as you keep breath, it gets softer, like quieter. Then is it just, just very subtle the, the in and out of the intention of the tonglen? Because you're, it's you with the, the, it's with, it's with the, the in breath, the giving and receiving. Yeah. yeah, yeah. But if there's not much breath going on, it's the, the it, it eventually moves more visual, visual as light. Uh huh. Yeah. Okay. The sensation becomes uh, prana and light. And that's also why the guru in the heart is the inner yoga part. It's actually profound in the inner yoga practice. Mm-hmm. When one focuses on the, the, the guru in the heart, like a yidam, mm-hmm. then you're actually gathering the pranas in the heart center. Mm-hmm. And it becomes full of light and radiance. Mm-hmm. So there's a real deep practice this. It's basically a yidam practice. Practicing like generation, right? Yeah. And then eventually, what you're doing is you're seeing, you're seeing rainbow light, mm-hmm. and then the prana merges with the light, and then you have a luminous mind. That's how it works. And you arrive at the same place with Anapasati too. Uh huh. Yeah. Always have to see you every day. Alive. So so you understand now? What? You understand? (laughs) So it's one in. No, one in, one out. One out. Two one in, in, two out. out. One in. No, three in, three in, out. four out. Four, four in, four out. Five in, five out. I totally confused. Hey, I have a thought that 
If I didn't get a chance to tell you this, I would tell you when we play golf uh, sometimes. Um, that knotted stick snake story is really fascinating because he looks stuck. And it's like artistic creativity. When an artist feels stuck, they oftentimes will just say, and they'll just wait. They just, they just wait and boing, it comes to them. It's amazing. That's right. Simply like trying to remember a name, don't. Just wait. Don't, don't try. Just wait. Mm -hmm. And all of a sudden it pops up. Yeah. Or somebody comes by and says, why did you use brown? Why don't you use blue? Yeah, thank you. <laughs> or you go on sabbatical. Right? Because you want to have a whole new view. And that infuses you with a whole new way of seeing it. You're going to be leaving this week now. Monday. I'd like to get out for one more game, but this is, this, 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 I have to make sure I'm feeling up to it. I get this, whatever this infection is every time. It was so sudden, it was so sudden. It was just like, bam. Exactly. Oh, it's great. It's, good. So, it's really, really good to be here. Uh, weekend. It was really nice. And Zinti uh, was very pleased. She's just yeah. <laughs> so busy. That's <laughs> oh, great. Okay. are all clear? I think so. Okay. Although, certainly I fall into that category of, why didn't you say that before so clearly? And I'm sure this is the 30th time I've heard it, right? Probably. And finally, okay. <laughs> so, yes. interested in doing Well, I just want to know primordial wisdom, so I don't know if, if I run, it's like I haven't done the first training well for Well, I would do uh, three months. Were you, were you here for the instructions of loving kindness? Yeah, three months of loving kindness. Start with loving kindness. Just follow this. Just follow this exactly. And then eventually, in a few months, come to Tonglen, 
Let's short time then you just do the sending and receiving but if you're just like in a situation or you or you just feel like you know, sending and receiving can you do it you know without in, it's always good it's, it's always good to, to just say something short of generating bodhicitta no matter what you do it's always good to just before any any type of meditation hey, and I know but, but if I'm with a person that you know is going through something very yeah, yeah. Afflictive, and I want. I feel like just you know. Oh, absolutely. So to just do oh, it, yeah, to yeah, just yeah. go. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just you don't need to. Yeah. Just do it. All clear. Very clear. Pardon? <laughs> it was a sky you would like. Ah, okay. We just need to check if you wear Good. 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 There was a teacher from India, a very famous teacher in India a thousand years ago called Atisha. And Atisha was invited to Tibet to teach. He knew he would he would stay there and die there, and uh, he was a great practitioner of bodhicitta. So Atisha decided to take one of his attendants, who always berated him. Imagine his attendant always always told his teacher off, and he did this as a practice because he heard how nice the Tibetans were. So he thought he needed some practice. So this, this very famous guru took this man with him who always scolded him. Imagine, you dumb teacher, you stupid teacher. And because he thought he wouldn't get enough practice being with the Tibetans. But when he got to Tibet, he found out, in fact, he had lots of 
lots of uh, uh, things to practice with. Sometime remind me, there's a wonderful, I've received a wonderful transmission um, of Zogchen tr transmission, if you wish sometime, um, called uh, uh, wearing, uh, wearing Liberation or Liberation Through Wearing. And it's an extraordinary text. So sometime that would be a wonderful mm -hmm. transmission to give where you, it's about wearing liberation. There's a tradition in Tibet and from ancient India about actually wearing, uh, always keeping at your heart the uh, syllables and the statement of the actual essence nature of liberation at your heart. And you wear it facing outward during, during your life, but when you pass away, it's turned inward. This is really quite an amazing, amazing um, text of nature of mind. Nice to see that. That's great. I have a question for all of you. Why do you think it's possible to have the mind uh, thought-free? Why would it be possible to remain naturally and effortlessly, which, by the way, thousands of people do right now. People think it's weird and miraculous, but actually uh, many people have trained this way. Why would it be possible to remain effortlessly in a thought-free, non-conceptual state? Because it's a natural state of the mind. Exactly. 
So all things that are attained is because actually that's the way the mind is. But that doesn't mean one can't have concepts too. So if you dwell in a thought-free state, it's not liberation. If you see the empty nature of the thought-free state, you've experienced the dharmakaya of liberation. You see the difference? If you can remain a thought-free, blissful state, congratulations, but it's not liberation. The nature of the thought-free state, which is the radiant luminosity of the mind, called the dharmakaya, that's the liberation. And you have to penetrate through the wall of tranquility. And you won't want to do it unless a teacher pushes you through. Guaranteed. That's why the Zen teachers often have a stick. Because when you get that way, you won't want to do anything else but be able to sit like that for the rest of your life. Somebody's going to have to push you through the gate of, of tranquility into awareness. So let's uh, take up your, your uh, handout there, uh, starting on page uh, 10. Loosen your belts. <coughs> Starting on page 10 with the Tonglen meditation session, generating bodhicitta. So the handout uh, you got today, we can just follow that with the altruistic motivation and the action bodhicitta prayer. So let's repeat it three times. All mother sentient beings, especially those enemies of hate, obstructors who harm me and those who create obstacles path of liberation, may they experience happiness and be separated from suffering. We'll quickly establish the state of the most perfect and precious Buddhahood. All mother sentient beings, especially those enemies who hate me, obstructors who harm me and those who create obstacles path of liberation, may they experience happiness and be separated from suffering. I'll quickly establish the state of the most perfect and precious Buddhahood. All mother sentient beings, especially those enemies who hate me, obstructors who harm me, and those who create obstacles the path of liberation and misiness, may they experience happiness and be separated from suffering, are quickly established in the state of the most perfect and precious Buddhahood. And now the activity of bodhicitta. Thus, until I achieve enlightenment, I perform virtuous deeds with body, speech, and mind. Until death, I perform virtuous deeds with body, speech, and mind. From now until this time tomorrow, I perform virtuous deeds with body, speech, and mind. And then going uh, next to refuge. In the Buddha, the Dharma, song most excellent. I take refuge in enlightenment is reached. By the merit of generosity and the good deeds, may I attain Buddhahood for the sake of all sentient beings. In the Buddha, the Dharma, song most excellent. I take refuge in enlightenment is reached. By the merit of generosity and other good deeds, may I attain Buddhahood for the sake of all sentient beings. Buddha, the Dharma, Son, the Most Excellent. I take refuge in enlightenment is reached. By the merit of generosity and the good deeds, may I attain Buddhahood for the sake of all sentient beings. And then the four common foundations. And we can read this out together. As this excellent body of mind with leisure and endowments, 
will be difficult to obtain repeatedly in the future. Right now, I'll accomplish the state of the unsurpassed Samantabhadra, that is, pristine awareness, to meaningfully benefit others. Also, it is not certain when the hateful enemy of this present precious body, the mar of death, will arrive. I and other beings are impermanent, the time of death being uncertain. Since there is no opportunity for ultimate happiness, wherever one is born in samsara, and since a happy existence was never seen, I'll enter the path of nirvana. In order for this body with leisure and wealth to possess me, I'll abandon the three non-virtuous poisonous afflictions, develop diligence and virtuous actions, and protect the vows and commitments of the three doors. The three doors are body, speech, and mind. And now the practice of guru yoga. So if you, if you don't have a root teacher, a root uh, lama, uh, then uh, visualize a Buddha figure radiant with light, uh, representing the in full enlightened mind, body, speech, and mind above the crown of your head, sitting on a lotus and moon seat. His body is radiant, his face is happy and smiling as regards all beings with non-referential compassion. In him and all the root lineage teachers are present. With intense respect and devotion, repeat the lineage prayer if you wish, and in particular the following prayer a hundred or a thousand times. We're just going to repeat it three times. So, uh, asking Buddha nature, the manifestation of Buddha nature, full enlightened nature, for blessings. I pray for your blessing, my Guru, great and completely worthy spiritual friend. I pray that you will cause love, compassion, and bodhicitta to arise in my mind. I pray for your blessing, my Guru, great and completely worthy spiritual friend. I pray that you will cause love, compassion, and bodhicitta to arise in my mind. I pray for your blessing, my Guru, great and completely worthy spiritual friend. I pray that you will cause love, compassion, and bodhicitta to arise in my mind. Now that figure, which is a <coughs> radiant light, transparent, dissolves and descends through the aperture of Brahma. It's a little um, transparent space on the crown of one's head. And like going into a tube, it descends into the heart center in the central channel right about here, and the figure sits in a pavilion of light, uh, like in an open shell. So let's uh, meditate on that for a little bit. And this is very important because it draws the pranas into the heart central in the central channel. And that is a very important part of this meditation that we want to keep going all the way through, is this visualization of a sphere of light with an awake uh, figure, which is our innermost awake essence.
After that, be counting the breath 21 times. One in, one out, two in, two out, and so on. Take your time and go at your natural rate.
the practice of vipassana, that is penetrative insight with support, with the eyes open regarding all phenomena, all experience, inner and outer, as dreamlike, as insubstantial, as, as emanations or manifestations of the mind. And then the uh, wisdom practice without any support. Examine the nature of unborn awareness. That is, awareness that doesn't get created. It doesn't die. It is a continuum of absolute clear non-clinging awareness.
And then the, uh, the meditation of even the remedy, the antidote of looking, of examining, is free to subside naturally. That is, let all clinging self-liberate. All states self-liberate. Let everything unbind because it's actually the nature of emptiness, already unbound. Another way of saying this is all phenomena is already liberated. It doesn't require anything that you need to do. Just see that everything is liberated. It's absolutely free, all phenomena. now resting in the nature of all of totality, the basis of everything. Rest the mind in the natural state. succinct instruction here is let the mind be unfabricated don't stop thoughts don't produce thoughts let the mind be unbound into non-constructive openness
now the practice of relative bodhicitta, love and compassion to someone close, uh, perhaps your mother or your relatives or your loved ones, and then on to those that uh, dislike you and those who you dislike. You can call those to mind and then open it up to love and compassion uh, for all sentient beings. Let's spend a few minutes uh, in that radiant state. Now the main body of the practice is a train and taking and sending alternately. Put them on the breath. So uh, <coughs> either individuals or uh, uh, all beings experiencing the suffering as a black light or a very dark light and breathing in that suffering, that light, because it's the nature of emptiness, it can't harm. And breathing it into the pavilion of light of the uh, Lama or the Guru in the heart center. And let all that black light dissolve away 
into primordial awareness, which is its nature, and it transforms into radiant rainbow light, and on the out-breath, you give back rainbow light, awakening beings.
Activity. May it lead the cessation of all afflictive emotions, fusion for every sentient being. May all beings be long happy. May all beings be established day and night in a continuum of pristine natural awareness, the full realization of the union of compassion and wisdom as a glorious gift for all sentient life. Many blessings, many blessings, many blessings. And then remembering that in post-meditation, uh, be like a magician. You actually know because you uh, have some understanding of the nature of emptiness, you see how the magical illusion is created, how uh, all these states uh, are created out of, uh, out of clean. Good. So that's the uh, transmission and the uh, instructions for Tonglen. I'm very pleased to pass that on. I've received that. It's always it's important whenever transmissions are given. Uh, by tradition, um, in India and Tibet, it's very strong tradition that whenever one see, receives a direct transmission, um, that the teacher states who they received it from, so that the, um, uh, the uh, practitioners have confidence it's a genuine, uh, true, unbroken tradition. So this has been received uh, first from His Holiness the Dalai Lama uh, in, um, in Ladakh, in Spiti, in uh, 2001, uh, and uh, once by the great uh, Venerable Namjul Rinpoche. I remember at Seringma House he gave us uh, this teaching. And uh, twice more by uh, the very Venerable Drikung Antul Rinpoche uh, in, um, at the Dharma Center of Canada and then again uh, at uh, Namjul Gampa. So very happy to pass this on. This is an unbroken tradition uh, of practice from the 12th century. So, and original, originally the essence of it, the parts of it came from um, Atisha's teacher, uh, Saringpa, in uh, Sumatra. So it comes all the way from Sumatra in the 10th century and was put together as a main practice uh, by Guru Chakawa in about the 12th century. And every single yogin, male and female, in Tibet, actually does this practice extensively for a long time. And all of the higher practice, well, higher practices, all of the tantric practices, such as um, Manjusri and Chenrezig, these full sadhana practices, uh, actually have this uh, Tonglen practice as its, as its core element. So it's actually really good to learn this. It's a great, great practice. So, 
Thank you. Oh, you're, you're, you're very welcome. I'd like to say thank uh, uh, Cynthia and Nathan for uh, hosting this and putting this together, and uh, Laurel also for instigating the wish. Would I please? Would I teach? It's good because I follow a very ancient tradition uh, that I don't uh, teach unless I'm requested to teach. So uh, this is a great benefit I feel for many people. It's been an absolute delight. Um, sharing the Dharma with you, meditating with you. It's, uh, it's a beautiful space here, and you're a delightful group. So, so thank you very much. It's been a really heartfelt uh, experience. It's been great. And I wish for all of you uh, to practice with diligence. And if this tradition uh, called Buddhism, uh, and these particular traditions, which have specific names, does not suit you, uh, it's very important that you actually find a, a real, genuine lineage tradition uh, and the teachers of that tradition that suit your temperament because this is a very deep path. And as the Dalai Lama says, if you are a Christian or a Catholic or Jewish uh, or a Sufi or something like that, uh, go find a teacher of that tradition that has good realization. It doesn't have to be Buddhism. But it, it is important that you, if you take up a practice for liberation and awakening, that there is a genuine path behind it, a deep, uh, uh, um, well-tested lineage behind it, and that you can go to someone that has the genuine experiences. Uh, they may not be fully awakened, but they have the genuine experiences uh, of that uh, tradition, and they can pass that on to you in a living lineage. So uh, it doesn't have to be uh, Buddhism. It doesn't have to be this tradition. But find something of a living lineage that speaks to your heart and actually works uh, for you. So this is my prayer uh, that, you, that you do that. That's it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's exact. Yeah, right on. <laughs>